Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercane.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, part five, chapters one through three. Let's start the show. Part five, The Scarlet Field of Kankano Ray, ends the main narrative of The Dark Tower. We begin with Susanna taking her leave going through a magic door drawn by Patrick Danville. The former quartet is further reduced when Mordred attacks a weary Roland and Patrick, and Oi sacrifices himself to save Roland. Roland finally makes it to the Dark Tower, but before he gains entrance, he faces off against the Crimson King, first shooting Sneetches out of the sky, then resisting the siren call of the tower, and finally enlisting Patrick's artistry to erase the Crimson King out of existence. Roland sends Patrick back to the last outpost before approaching the Dark Tower. Sean, this is like the end of the story, basically. Basically, Roland has completed his quest to the Dark Tower by the end of this section, and he's divested himself of any encumbrances, whether they be members of the Cotet, like Susanna and Oi, or glommers on like Patrick Danville. <laughs> but he approaches with just he and his guns and more mangled fingers. And he's there at the door and, you know, cries, I am Roland DeShane of Gilead. And he's there. So all that is left to find out what's inside. But, you know, we've really come full circle to some extent of what was promised to us at the beginning that he was seeking the Dark Tower and he, he has found it. You kind of like uh, hinted at it with with your comment there about divested of all encumbrances. Like, not only is this the end of the story, but this is also when Susanna leaves the story. We've had an exit of each member of the quartet, but up to now, they have exited uh, the stage of the story by dying. You know, Eddie is shot in the head and died very slowly, luckily forming this mystic gift on his deathbed to learn about Dandelo and share that not very important information with the group. <laughs> Jake died sacrificing himself to save Stephen King. That seems to be very important for the, the world that this story exists in. But Susanna just decides to, to leave. She checks out. Yeah. Why does she do that? And if she were to just leave, if she were to just abandon the quest and abandon Roland, why do it now? Why not? Why not go just a little further and see the tower? I don't think I could get that close and not go the last few steps. But what do you think? Yeah, so there's two questions here, right? So we'll tackle them one at a time. I think the first question is, why does the character of Susanna make her decision after all of this quest to leave before getting to the Dark Tower? So we'll take that one first. And then we'll come back to the second question is, why does King, the writer, choose to have Susanna leave in this way? And I think there might be slightly different answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. So for the first one, my thought is that Susanna, and we've discussed this before, has never seemed to have been the Dark Tower junkie that Eddie definitely is and that Jake seems to be and that Roland obviously is. Yeah. She seems to have been carried along for the ride to some extent. When she has said that she's all in, and even in the multiple times in this book when she reunites with Roland and kisses him on the lips and she says these things, it's not that it rings false, but it's never been, it's been a change of character for her, unlike Eddie, where Eddie has said he's all in on the tower. So while she's never been fully engaged in going for it, she does seem like, hey, I wanted to do it. But it gets to a point where I think she realizes that. She has seen what's happened to Eddie, and she's seen what's happened to Jake, and she knows Roland's history that if she were to continue on, she'll probably die, and there might still be an opportunity for her to see Jake and Eddie again, maybe on different terms, but there's something else for her out there. And she says at some point that 
Roland's way is the way of the gun and the way of death. And she wants to choose a way that is something different, whether that's love or something else. But she wants to maybe break that cycle and, and get away from that death. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think the the most important part of your answer there is the fact that Susanna was never really that tower junkie like the other ones were. As you said, Roland was 100% committed to the tower. Hell or high water, no matter the sacrifice, he was willing to make it so that he could reach his goal. That's without question. We know that Eddie became a tower junkie over time spent with Roland when he saw visions in the fire as his power to carve almost mystically totems, like these magical things where he makes the door, he makes the key, he makes the ring. Eddie's journey there, he becomes fully enamored with the tower. We even get these moments where he doubts if his love for Susanna is strong enough to prevent him from keeping on that quest. Yes. At certain points, he decides, like, no, the tower is more important, or no, the, tower, the tower's draw to me is stronger than my love for Susanna, which we found kind of shocking. But. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then there's Jake. I don't know that Jake had the same obsession with the tower per se, but I think he had an obsession with Roland. I think Jake would follow Roland to the ends of the earth, to the ends of all of creation, despite every time that Jake has been betrayed by Roland, despite every terrible thing that Roland has caused to happen to Jake, Jake truly loved Roland and truly was willing to follow him wherever he might take him. Even if it's, again, getting dropped into an abyss, even if it's, again, being uh, sacrificed. All that is to say is that I think Eddie and Jake would have gone to the tower with Roland. Mm -hmm. But without Eddie and Jake there, Roland wasn't enough to keep Susanna motivated. And, and so that's why she just said, all right, I'm bailing. And she had the convenient excuse or the convenient alternative of these dreams of another Eddie and another Jake offering her hot chocolate mit schlag and saying, yes, here, come here. All you need to do is decide. I think it kind of stinks that <laughs> nobody in Roland's quartet, nobody except Roland himself got to see the tower. Yep. I resent that a little bit about the structure of the story. I understand that for dramatic purposes and storytelling reasons, I don't think we could have the final battle at the foot of the tower and have everybody get killed except Roland or something like that. That would be a very different story. But it's a shame that nobody reached the tower. Right. And Susanna could have and chose not to. It's frustrating. And Susanna says that she knows that if she waits too long, that she won't be able to resist it, right? Yeah. The power that Roland starts to feel, she doesn't have the willpower to resist that. So she knows that this has to be the night when she leaves. I guess one of the questions I had, and maybe you hinted at it, is why does Susanna wait until this moment to leave? Mm -hmm. When she could have left as soon as Roland came back without Eddie and Jake, or without Jake, yeah. and Eddie was already gone. Why did why did she choose to not leave then when there were probably doors in Castle Discordia that she could have zipped through and noped out? Mm -hmm. Why didn't she leave after Roland almost died and just stayed at the outpost with Patrick Danville or you know, with the stuttering Bill the robot who could have kept her safe in some way? Why did she wait to get this far? And I don't know if there's a good answer to that. I think part of it is you know she hadn't had the dreams yet with Eddie and Jake. She needed Patrick Danville to facilitate her exit, mm -hmm. but she went through all that cold. Yeah. The cold, 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 cold for so long, and the giant worm, and the facing off against Dandelo, and it's like, oh, now you're, now is when you're noping out? Like, I would have been... I mean, maybe it's it could be the fallacy of sunken costs here, but that you're sort of, you're hinting at. She did all those things, but... Plus, she did all the things that came before that. Yeah. She became a gunslinger. She fell in love with Eddie. She grew to be a, a kind of a sister slash mother figure to Jake. She kind of adopted Oi into their family and their quartet. 
and went on all these adventures and faced all of these obstacles and overcame all of them and didn't think that perhaps that investment was the, the payout was getting to the tower. And instead, she decided that the payout was something maybe more useful, maybe more meaningful, which was a life that could be sort of back to what it was before she met Roland and a life that could have love in it again and maybe a version of the of the people she loved and abandon the idea of this life of a gunslinger. Yep. It was very affecting the writing there and the Oh yeah. You know, the whole when Roland gets down on his knees and begs her to stay and she says no and you're debasing yourself by begging, get up off your feet, Roland, you're not mm-hmm. that type of person. And you know, even when she finally makes the decision and he he goes through like all the stages, like he tries to bargain with her, he threatens her, he does all these things to try to keep her to stay, and eventually she's just like goodbye and she rolls through the door and doesn't look back and he yells wait and it's too late she's gone and he's yeah truly left alone right he's left with a billy bumbler who has stopped talking mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to like him as much anymore he's stuck with a, a young man who's just joined their group and doesn't talk at all and doesn't really have a concept of what's going on i mean this is really the most alone we've seen roland in since book one probably yeah and that's a bit of a, a struggle that I had too, because for all of the the incredibly powerful emotions that King drags us through in the moments leading up to Susanna's departure through the door, which, as you say, were very powerful, very affecting, I broke down in tears reading through that whole section. I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't not cry upon Susanna's exit, but. The impact on Roland is that now I'm alone. Now this hurts in a way because I I opened my heart up to these people and I truly cared for them. But, you know, I've lost all of them. I have to carry on without them and I don't know if I can bear it. But as he gets closer to the tower, the tower just sings this powerful song and yeah. essentially erases all of these bad feelings. It's like a white noise machine. It drowns out all of the sorrow. It drowns out all of the the sadness and it it actually elevates him. It energizes him in a way that that negates any of the negative impact of losing everybody who he cares about and carrying on all alone. He's just transported to the tower on the song of the flowers. Right. The impact that we have from the final member of the quartet leaving and doing so by choice, which I think is a big part of what really hurts Roland. It just kind of, it just kind of it's washed away because he continues on and he starts with a heavy heart, but by the time he reaches the tower, his heart is not heavy anymore. Right. He doesn't even think about that anymore. There's no room for it. So I wonder what it would have been like if Susanna had continued with him. Would he have just kind of, walked away from her yeah right you know like all right well uh i gotta go in there now and you can't because you don't have the right you know sigil on your you know, or you're not of the line of eld or yep. whatever and it's like okay king did some masterful writing and really made made an emotional impact on me and then as soon as that door swung shut behind Susanna, it kind of just fell fell down and uh yeah, the impact was was just washed away by the the power of the tower. Well, there's an in-between point there. Mm-hmm. So in in between when Susanna leaves and Roland gets to the tower and really gets carried off on these emotions, there's the second chapter, which is all dealt with Mordred. Yeah. And you seem to have just sort of glossed over that, Jay. Like, isn't this a really important piece of the of the puzzle? I mean, you went straight from Susanna to the tower, but we have what is possibly Roland's arch enemy, his his erstwhile son who's been hunting him and chasing after him for months along the trail. And it's going to be this face-off between father and son and only one can survive. I mean- Would you say a titan against a titan? 
A titan against a titan. This is what it is, right? Like these two ultimate characters created from the imagination of the king of horror. And we don't want to skip over that because it's so important. So meaningful. I'm sure it's going to be an epic battle. The only reason why I care enough about it to discuss it with you today is because it's when Oi dies. Yes. Oi Oi is the best. And Oi shows his allegiance. Oi is a gunslinger. And Roland finally realizes this and finally acknowledges it after Oi has died because he realizes what Oi has done. And it's, and I think of all of the deaths, if not, if you just want to make it global and say all of the departures of the Cotet members, I think Oi's is the best and most meaningful death. Eddie's was comically bad and jake's was foolish and unnecessary in in the way i see it and susanna simply just made a decision right or wrong it was meaningful and it was heartfelt but i think in terms of the structure of dying in this for the sake of roland dying for the sake of roland's quest for the tower i think always is the one that means the most. Hmm. I think Oi knew he was going to die. I think, yeah, I think it's pretty clear. I don't know how he had this premonition. Maybe it's something that Billy Bumblers, I don't know if it's all Billy Bumblers or just Oi, or just because he was with Jake when he died. Something happened. Oi knew he was going to die soon. He stopped eating. He stopped talking. But he knew he needed to be around. He was following his leader to the tower, and he needed to help be part of that that group and serve that mission. In Oi's case, it was to protect Roland, and he did that, and he did that, and he sacrificed himself in doing that and saved Roland's life. I don't think Jake saved Roland's life, and I think Jake could have perhaps saved King's life without dying himself. Right. And I think the fact that Eddie was just sort of randomly shot in the head by a guy who they thought was dead who's already shot and dying on the ground because he still had, I don't know, enough breath left in him <laughs> to move his hand and pull the trigger. That was just dumb if I needed to rank how meaningful each of the departures, if not deaths, of each of the members of the quartet in the story. I think Boys is number one in my book. I would agree with that. And yet, so it is important. It is meaningful. And it's in the context of this giant fight that we've been looking forward to now for the entire book. Mm -hmm. And right after Oi dies, it's simply a gunshot. Yeah. A couple shots by Roland and that ends the threat of Morgrid. Mm -hmm. This is what we've been building up to. Like all of this just to be, hey, here comes the snake guy. Shoot him. Okay, it's dead. It's over. Like I was really expecting a lot more than that from Morgrid. Yeah. We, we've gotten point of views from him. We get this sense of how powerful he is and how he's being built up to be something greater than what he's at. And people are scared of him. We've seen him devour one of the glamours, one of the three kings that was left behind. Mm -hmm. And what we've got is a kid who has already been poisoned from the meat he ate and has diarrhea and is in bad shape. And he's probably going to die anyways. And he tries to sneak up and kill them and is unsuccessful. and. With barely a second thought, Roland's able to dis dispatch him. Yeah, I'll give King credit that the conceit of Roland as the gunslinger and like the quintessential gunslinger is that of all of his skills, his ability to shoot what he's aiming at is like unquestioned. Mm. So the fact that Roland would miss his target is effectively impossible. And it never occurs. I, I can't remember a single time that Roland meant to shoot something and didn't hit it in any of these books, right? So if Roland is aware enough that somebody is coming to attack him and he has his gun in his hand and is able to fire it, Roland will hit it and his aim will be true. And that's effectively what happens, right? Yep. That circumstance is what occurs. Roland sees his threat. He aims, his aim is true, and Mordred dies from a single shot to the, 
the little uh, baby face on the back of the spider. Okay, that's true to the characters and the conceit of what a gunslinger is. Beyond that, I just... It's just such a letdown. It's pitiful. Mordred thinks of himself as the being whose coming has been prophesied. My ass! <laughs> I don't care if you've been prophesied since the beginning of time that the, you know, the prim is going to combine with the whatever and the, you will be the being that will bring about the end of all things and topple the tower. Like, no. All you are is a dumb kid who can transform into a spider and you're going to die of exposure. If Roland had just waited another day or two, like if the tower had just been two more days journey, I think I got the feeling Mordred would have died yeah. before reaching him. And it makes me like really wonder why has Mordred waited until now? Why has he waited this long to strike? He had many other occasions when he could have, he could have run up on Roland at any other time. And this is the only time that we've ever seen Roland in a, in a state where he couldn't stay awake. Right. <laughs> this is the guy who knows exactly how long a minute is. This is the guy who can make himself fall asleep, but not really be asleep because he has to be on alert. He can't keep himself from falling asleep. And, and it's because of this sleepiness that Mordred observes that he finally has an opportunity and it kind of works. If it weren't for Boy yep. standing guard, he would have gotten the drop on Roland. And that's why Oi saved the day and saved Roland. But yeah, it just seems lame. Totally agreed. But luckily we have a second villain for Roland to encounter, and that's the Crimson King. And surely, Jay, this will be a much more difficult fight and a Whereas before it was, maybe it wasn't Titan against Titan. This really has to be Titan against Titan. Yes? Yeah. I mean, if Mordred was the being whose coming has been prophesied, then his two dads, <laughs> they must be like serious, serious enemies and it will be a Titan against a Titan. Uh... Yeah. Instead, so we get Roland approaching the tower. He realizes that, you know, he thought maybe I could sneak around the back way and sneak in and get in that way. But he realized that's not going to happen. There's no cover. They see the Crimson King up on this balcony and they're going to have to face off. And immediately the Crimson King starts throwing sneeches from the Harry Potter books as his weapon, which as to what you just said, if there's something that Roland can do, it's to shoot something without missing. And so these sneeches are ineffective at best. Yeah. Roland is undercover. He's able to pick these off the sky, so there's no worries there. The only worry Roland has is that he's going to be hypnotized by the power of the tower and sort of come out in the open before he needs to. But that's really Roland's only concern about dying, right? It's not because of yeah. the sneeches or the Crimson King. It's just because he's not going to have the willpower to get away from the tower. And the Crimson King, who we're led to believe is very, very powerful, if not all-powerful, if not some sort of god who can control men from across the multiverse to come and work for him and run towns and create breakers and then have this whole series of vampires and Tahin who will work for him and give their life for him and do everything for him. And have a whole economy of the Sombra Corporation. Right. And... And not to mention the Kalas, right? Oh, yeah. Where the wolves come and, and take the kids once a generation. All, that, all this has been going on for forever, and it's all been at the behest and the control of this this single person, if he is a, a person. I don't know if he's a, a man who's risen to some magical heights of power or or if he's just some mystical being that resembles a man. but Resembles Santa Claus. Yeah. He's jolly old Saint Nick. Yeah, so he is reduced to sitting on a balcony and throwing sneeches at Roland and doesn't and taunting him. That seems to be his superpowers. Yeah. Taunts that don't quite find the mark. He uses no magic on Roland. He's been telepathically communicating with both Mordred and Roland throughout the last sections of this book, and he has no other magic available to him. He's undead because he ate a spoon, remember? <laughs> 
did King just want to give Roland something that he could easily overcome by being a gunslinger, by employing the tool of his trade, the, the gun? We've explored many times about how King has had to bring Roland into a place where his guns didn't solve the problem. Right. Whether it's because he's dealing with magic or he has to solve a mystery or he gets fingers chopped off of his hand. In one way or another, Roland is a lot less interesting if his gun solves every problem he encounters. Here, it seems like King's only setting him up with problems that his gun can solve and makes Roland a little less interesting. It also makes his antagonist a lot less interesting. (laughs) If you just needed somebody to throw grenades, why did it have to be this grand schemer, this person who controlled all of Endworld, who influenced all these rebellions and the fall of Gilead and all these things? Like, Wasn't Crimson King involved in all of this, ultimately? When Roland spoke with Walter on the Golgotha, wasn't the Crimson King part of that mix of influences in Roland's early life and ultimately the destruction of the world? This is that guy, and all he is now is a guy lobbing hand grenades from a balcony. Yep. Uh, To make it worse for me, King portrays him as utterly insane. Mm. He's not just unstable. He's not just, I don't know, maybe maniacal yeah he he's just cuckoo at this point like he he's reduced to just screeching there are lines there are sentences in the text with e that's who we're dealing with here just like mordred made his final attack when he was about to die himself anyway from poor nutrition infection and, and sickness the crimson king makes his final attack as a completely insane person with no power Right. He is not a threat. So I don't know why Roland doesn't just come out from behind cover and walk towards the Dark Tower and just shoot at every sneech that comes his way. Because eventually the Crimson King's going to run out of sneeches. And so what? He's still trapped on the tower. Yeah, and then you shoot the Crimson King. So instead, we go to this oddly Donald Duck Bugs Bunny strategy of drawing the Crimson King and then erasing him. Yeah. To erase them out of existence. It's just very odd. I mean, we now know why Patrick Danville was so important and why he has continued on. Just like the reason that Roland was able to draw the three that he did back on the beach, the reason that he's able to draw, that they were able to draw Patrick is for his actual drawing skills, right? So yeah, he can draw a perfect likeness with the help of a little bit of blood. And uh, the rose petals, he's able to get the color of his eyes right, gets the perfect resemblance of the Crimson King, and then uses those erasers that Dandelo had given him to then erase the Crimson King out of existence. Everything except his eyes. Yes, which is just all sort of weird and brings up so many questions about what's Patrick's powers, all these drawing things. You know, we, we you know, I think Susanna says earlier, like, oh, this is why he didn't give him erasers, because he could have erased stuff. And it's like... Yeah, why couldn't Patrick have drawn a bazooka and given that to Roland? Or draw, you know, could he draw things into existence? And how would that work? It's just, to your point, it's just sort of lame. It really makes me wish that we had seen Randall Flagg get to this point. Yeah. Randall Flagg was sort of brought along and he's in book four and he's taunting Roland and. We learned that he's, you know, he he's here all along just to have seen him defeat Mordred back earlier in this book and him to get the, the Dark Tower at the same time as Roland. I think that that would have been a much more interesting way to go. Yeah. That we have this person who does seem to have magic and has a personality that's charming and intriguing and really stands as a mirror almost to Roland, I think seeing the two of them face off would have been much more meaningful than this Crimson King who, again, Roland doesn't seem to have any sort of relationship with and is reduced to basically a gunfight and an eraser, which isn't satisfying. I like your suggestion. I mean, in terms of writing fan fiction for the <laughs> the alternate ending to the Dark Tower story, um, it's definitely a step in the right direction. When Flag slash Walter slash Man in Black, he of many names, when he meets Mordred, he's 
that's when he dies. And we thought that was a mistake. Yeah. I think it would have been far better if Mordred hurt him permanently in a permanent way, but did not kill him. If the power or the, the sneakiness of Flag is the one thing that Mordred hadn't counted on and allowed him to get away, but not get away scot-free. Maybe he's got a limp or maybe he loses an eye or, or something like that, but he's still in the, the universe and he's still on the trail to the Dark Tower himself, just like Roland is. And it's only in that moment when we get that point of view of Flag through Mordred's ability to read minds that we learn that it's been Flag's mission all along to reach the tower, just as Roland's right. mission has been that. And that that's their convergence point. That's their natural intersection. And you know, going along with your fan fiction rewrite, <laughs> that would have been a great place for them to to meet and square off. And maybe then on Mordred's uh, second meetup with Flag, that's when Mordred wins the day. And in that struggle, Roland has his opportunity to kill Mordred or something like that. We've got it all planned out. Yeah. But the Crimson King is defeated. Roland sends Patrick on his way back and we're told that he's no longer part of the story. Yep. The, the writer can no longer see where he goes, which is sort of odd because King could make something up, but whatever the case. And we do get this nice scene of Roland finally getting to the tower and calling on the names of all that came before him. Yes. His parents, the members of his first quartet back in Magus, his uh, current quartet, um, and then some of the others as well to open up the door. And the book ends, not really, but the, the main narrative ends here with, with Roland about to enter the tower. Yeah. The book does end. I mean, this is the end of the story. Yes, we get a code and an epilogue, which we'll be covering next episode. But this this sort of ends. And would this have been a satisfying ending? Like, I know I haven't read ahead, so I do not know what the last thirty pages reveal or not. But to some extent, this could have been a satis this could be a satisfying ending, at least as far as Roland completing his quest. Um, maybe not the ending with Mordred and Crimson King, but I mentioned this at the beginning and this idea that Roland had to divest himself of everything. He started off alone on his quest and now he's entering the dark tower alone. He's gotten rid of everyone. And I guess we didn't come back around in answering that question, but why do you think King makes it that way? Is it because this is Roland's story and it needs to be Roland alone? Is that why, Ro why King has gotten rid of Susanna in such a way? Is that why he sends Patrick away and gets rid of Oi and it's just Roland in his gun? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there there's a, a wonderful balance and nice book ending nature to that. The the story begins with Roland alone and it ends with Roland alone. And he couldn't have gotten from the beginning to the end if he had stayed alone. But in some ways he sort of needs to be alone. We're talking about like authorial intent here, right? Yeah, a little bit. I I think I mean it it's much more of the structure of a hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. It is the hero who has to to make it and do the thing that he does. The example that me and most people my age are probably most familiar with is Luke Skywalker, right? Luke Skywalker starts off, sure, uh, you know, in the first movie, he has friends along the way, but at the end, he's the one who drops the bomb in the Death Star. It's his story. He's the one that the story kicks off with, and he's the one that it ends with. I think it, to some extent, needs to be with Roland. I think what's interesting from a authorial intent though and as you just said is that roland has changed along the way when we first see him in the desert in book one he is totally alone mm -hmm. he his horse is just or his mule has just died and it's just him in the desert yeah he's he's at such a point of abstraction that even his his brain is like a separate from his body right at that point where he's just like like he's achieved the fourth level of kef or whatever it is <laughs> like you know it, He's like, I'll drink later. Yeah. Kind of thing. Whereas, yeah, he, he's not like that right now. No. And in fact, I mean, he's very clear about it that he is coming to the tower and he's coming in the name of Stephen and Gabriel and Cuthbert and Elaine and Jake and Eddie and Oi and Susanna and all these. He realizes that all these people have brought him along the way and that he would not be who he, who he is 
today, he would not be where he is today if it weren't for all those people. Everything they did, even people you wouldn't think of, right? So when he goes through that litany of folks, he mentions Hacks the Cook. Yeah. He mentions David the Hawk and Shimi Ruiz and Stephen King even, he, he mentions along the way. So all these people have had an impact on his life. Didn't mention Ted Brodigan, though. He does mention Ted Brodigan. He of America. Oh, yeah. He even mentions Anne Talitha, she of River Crossing. Oh, that's right. Oh, he didn't mention the the Tet Corporation yes. folks. He didn't mention John Cullum and Aaron Deepano. He didn't mention Irene Tassenbaum. Well, maybe they weren't directly part of his story in the same way. I do like when he does that litany, Jay, that he mentioned Oi the Brave, he of, of Midworld. I think Oi is the only one who gets an adjective to describe himself. Yeah, because he doesn't have a last name. <laughs> maybe it should be brave oi brave yeah or would it be ave you would say ave olin ave oi the ave he of id earled <laughs> yeah i mean it was kind of like a an oscar speech i'd like to thank my manager and my spouse etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's like there's always going to be that one person who didn't make the list and irene tassenbaum why did it have to be you why I did so much for you, Roland. I'm sure Roland will take out a full page ad in Variety the next day. And yeah. All right. So that brings us to the end of this section. And despite the serious nature of this section, we did find some fun stuff along the way, Jay. Yeah, we're always finding some fun stuff. I mean, we like reading these books. <laughs> One of the things that really stood out for me, drove me crazy, but in a fun way was how Roland was so appreciative of the adjustable handles on the whole fat two wagon that Bill the Robot had made for him. Right. Because if he wanted to pull whole fat two by himself, he could adjust the handle so that that worked. Or if he wanted to share the burden and have Patrick help him, he could move the handles very easily so that they could both pull. And I thought... How ridiculously stupid is this? <laughs> if this is effectively like a rickshaw, this is what I'm picturing in my mind. It's something on wheels with a, a wagon space to hold people or things with two long handles that stick out of the front. If you are one person pulling this, you stand between the handles. If you're two people pulling this, you stand outside the handles. Yep. You don't need to have adjustable handles. This is like over-engineering at its most extreme. Like, what is the point of this? Unless I'm totally... Because King doesn't give us a lot of detail on the structure of this. Right. But the way I pictured it, you don't need to have adjustable handles. You just need to switch, switch where you're standing. And it is funny that Bill made... He has like an hour to make them transportation. Yeah. I just sort of get the feeling he spends like 50 minutes of his time on that when... <laughs> the least useful thing i'm sure like susanna was sitting in like hey how about you put some extra cushions in here for me or maybe take a motor from one of your other devices and attach it so they wouldn't even have to pull it but king even includes the detail of uh there's like some sharp edge or something that yeah bill didn't have time to smooth that to like to grind down right. it's like oh if i had another hour i could grind that down for you and they're like ah i'll just cover it with a piece of, of leather like yeah but thanks for these handles yeah, thanks for the handles. You gave us a, a thing that's hazardous. We're going to cut ourselves on it. You know, like no tetanus shot out of the end world. So I was intrigued by this idea that the story hinges on the fact that draw, as in to do art, is the same as draw, as in to bring something close to you. Hmm. So we have a homonym in the English language, at least. And that's, you know, Suzanne is able to say, oh, not only is Patrick Danville been drawn to us, but he can draw to draw something else. And that's how they make the door. And then later on, that's how he draws the Crimson King. And so there's a lot made of this homonym, draw versus draw. And I wonder if, I know we have some foreign readers out there who maybe have not read this in English and how those translations work. I mean, is the word draw the same in those languages or does it not work? And how does that get explained? in different versions of the book. I'm just sort of interested in that and, and made me think about it because 
we've talked before about how language is weird anyways here. Mm-hmm. The fact that people in our America can understand what Roland's saying and vice versa, and that some words are the same and some words not, but for them to have the same meaning, even though they sound the same, that's sort of another leap here that people are making. I think at the end of the day, it's not vital to the success of Patrick's power, but the homonym makes it, gives us a, like a an overlap, an echo of yes. what's happening in the story where, you know, like the title of book two is the drawing of the three. And here's Patrick drawing, you know, in his art, but he's also creating doors, which is how, I mean, everything you just said, it's like, it's all there. But does that completely fall apart? Yeah. If those words aren't homonyms, and if so, in another language, maybe this means nothing. <laughs> or or Susanna's like remark about that. Oh yeah, he draws and he draws. Ah, yeah. ah very clever, Stephen King. It also made me wonder. We talked about this when we did book two, and I wondered where did the magic doors come from? Mm. Who created them, and why were they there? Was it some sort of power inherent in Roland that made them appear to give him what he needed when he needed it? Access to drugs, access to, to our world, etc. But here we see one of these identical doors created by Patrick Danville. And so is there some other artist out there who's drawing these doors for Roland on the beach? Was it Patrick in some weird time loopy way? Was it just something entirely different? I don't know. But just made me think about that as well. I mean, Patrick draws the unfound door, which seems to be the only door that could appear more than once and appear in multiple places. Yes. Because Roland has passed through that door before. And it used to be at that the cave that the, the, the Manny knew about. Yep. It's the same type of door. It's the same magical door that you can only see from one side and doesn't have any depth or thickness. It's Right. When we had that discussion for book one, because Walter says to Roland on the Golgotha that I'm not going to give you any more power than you already have. You already have enough power. I mean, like, like he can see or he's aware of, or perhaps because he's in all times, he knows that Roland will have the access to these doors. I think I'd prefer it if it were something inherent to Roland. Yeah. That made those doors appear. But maybe that's because he, he Roland and Patrick sort of tap into the same magic outside of themselves in different ways. Mm. Rolling through his essence and Patrick through his drawing. Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting, the image of Roland looking at this door, it's facing page 750 in my copy of the book. It's Roland sort of after Suzanne has gone through with his head down. I get the feeling that Michael Whelan didn't read the book as closely as the rest of us because that door is labeled the artist. When in fact, (laughs) it shouldn't have any writing on it. It should have some symbols that Susanna has drawn that would read unfound in whatever symbolism that that means. And so. Yeah, assuming that that Whelan had that information, why would he make why would he make the choice to to write the artist? Because that implies to us, like if you're just flipping through the book and you haven't read it yet, that Roland's going to draw somebody through that door who is an artist. Yes. And. That's not what's happening here at all. So, Nice little detail on that, though. You can see the tracks of the motorized scooter that Susanna rode yeah. leading up to the door thing. It's a nice little detail. I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned the tracks. In my mind's eye, I've always pictured these doors hovering just a little bit above the ground. Mm. So if you were riding a wheeled vehicle through the door, you'd have to kind of like pop a wheelie or something like that to kind of <laughs> like going up onto a curb. and. Whereas this is drawn as though the door is, is resting right on the ground. Like the opening yeah, it's of flush. the doorway is the ground. Neither here nor there. What other fun stuff you got? I found myself pondering Stephen King's position on whether or not all the robots in his story are good or evil. Are they intelligent enough, like in an artificial intelligence way, to actually have unique personalities and to be able to be good or evil? Or are they just slaves to their programming because it's never really clear like when we meet stuttering bill he's stuttering because he has been effectively programmed commanded by dandelo to not fix his stutter Mm -hmm. and as soon as dandelo is killed 
Roland and Susanna say, go ahead and fix your stutter, dude. And he does. So he's no longer stuttering Bill. But he's always so nice. Everything he does is very helpful and kind. Also, the butler android, Susanna actually attacks him and shoots out his eyes and blinds him just like Eddie did to Andy, the evil robot in Wolves of the Call. And that robot, that butler robot, just says, oh, shucks, you shot out my eyes. Now I'll never be able to see again. So I'm going to switch to infrared and be able to see just fine. And then he carries Susanna around as if she weren't the person who did this thing to him. Right. And provides advice and guidance and transportation. And sandwiches at some point. And even sandwiches. <laughs> so that robot, despite the attack, despite the treatment, is still like not an evil actor in this, in this world. But then there's Andy. Andy's the first robot we meet in the story of this type. And he's duplicitous. And he's also willing to kill if need be. And he's very dangerous for all of these reasons. So I guess another way of asking this question is, is Andy or was Andy actually evil or was he just programmed to be bad? Mm. I put this in as a fun stuff item because it didn't really fit in with our other conversation, but it just made me wonder, like, we've met three of these identical robots that probably came from the same factory. Two of them have been very helpful to our characters and one of them has been a major threat to our characters. Right. So where do you think King stands on that? I always think that King has a bias against technology. Hmm. Seems like that's a lot of his, in a lot of his writing that he's worried about that and sensitive to that. But I don't know if these robots are corrupted by who they're with and they've been reprogrammed at some point. That's sort of the sense that I got that Andy was made to be duplicitous by the folks that he was working with. And that's why he tended to be more evil. And then whether or not once they've had some of that programming, it continues on. I'm not exactly sure. I don't, I, I don't know, but it is an odd thing to notice because you're absolutely right that they, it seems like if they've all come off the same assembly line and we get the sense that maybe they have, then why, why do they act so differently? Yeah. I don't know. Another fun stuff item that I had was just a great line. And that's when Roland was gazing at the tower for one of the first times. He was noticing how much his eye was filled with all the world's clarity and color. And the part that I really liked about this was that had he seen better on that last day, he believed he would have been able to see the wind. I just love that, to see the wind itself. The only improvement you could have made to Roland's vision at that moment was that he could actually see the air in, in the atmosphere, like yeah. to, to see the wind, which is a great line. He would have been able to see the wind. Nice. So my last fun stuff is a couple things. As Susanna and Roland and Patrick are traveling, there's a radio in their trailer or tractor, whatever they're riding, and Bill puts on the music, and there's some old-time oldies that Susanna recognizes, but then there's some other upbeat songs like She Loves You and Hey Jude. And Roland seems to know the words to Hey Jude, which she's impressed by, although they seem to be hmm. different than the ones coming out of the speakers. But she doesn't recognize She Loves You. And somebody tells her, oh, that's the Beatles. She's like, the Beatles? What's a, what a funny name for a rock and roll band. And then she's, he spells it out and says Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S, not Beatles. And she's like, well, that's still a funny name for a rock and roll band, no matter which way you spell it. So first of all, I think that it's odd that Susanna doesn't get the pun of the Beatles being the, the beat, right? Like that was the whole thing behind it. Mm -hmm. It is invariably more of a clever name than what the Beatles were naming themselves after, which was like Buddy Holly and the Crickets, right? So Crickets, Beatles, but they had the, hey, we're going to make this a pun at least. And the fact that she doesn't get that and think that that's neat is weird. The fact that she doesn't think like, oh, there was bands called the Crickets beforehand why not have a band named the beatles that's not so odd but then the other thing was she was around in 1964 she loved you came out in 1963 beatlemania had already hit there's absolutely no way that i think that Susanna could have not known of who or what the beatles were absolutely not yeah you're right which makes me think that 
maybe she's in an entirely different world in which the Beatles were never a part of her world. And that's sort of changed my whole mind of where Susanna came from. Hmm. Or she was really oblivious. I don't know. I know you kind of just blew my mind a little bit. Like I, it never occurred to me that all of these characters in our quartet didn't come from the same version of Earth. Like I've just always assumed that it was like Roland's world and the world they came from. And then there were others beyond that. And I always assume like if they all did come from the same world, it is our world. There was a time in 1964 when there was a Susanna. Oh, but we know we found out it's not our world because Co-op City is in Brooklyn. Yes. In Eddie's world when it's in real in our world it's in the Bronx. Yeah, but to not have the Beatles. Yeah. And yet Hey Jude is across all worlds. I don't know, but there's a couple things that bothered me about it. It all ends up being fun stuff. Yeah. Or maybe pun stuff in this instance. <laughs> Jay, we are we're we're there. We're at the end. There's about thirty pages of the book left. There's a coda and an epilogue, mm-hmm. and that's going to be it. And we're going to cover those in our next episode. And then our plan is to also wrap up the book in our next episode. And then we're going to come back and do a podcast after that. So two episodes from now, which will be sort of an overview of our thoughts on the series as a whole and some things that we didn't get to talk about because we've been doing these in order. But now that we know how everything wraps up, we're going to come back and hit some major themes and and discuss it as a whole series. Yes, because there there were things like that that we have avoided discussing because they would be spoilers, certain connections. But now there's nothing left to spoil. Yeah. We can, we can start looking at those things. And then we're going to start getting to some other Dark Tower adjacent work by Stephen King. And we will post information about that on our different social media channels so you know what to read and where to come from. But uh, So we're going to wrap up book seven, we're going to wrap up the series, and then we're going to move on to some of the other works. Sound like a plan, Jay? Sounds like a great plan. I can't wait. All right. So that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we finish Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, covering the epilogue, Coda and Appendix. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. It's a bit of a bear. Rawr.